Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And this is a personal treat for me and an honor to have this man as a part of the Intentional Encourager podcast. He's the former head coach in the, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish men's basketball program, the North Carolina Tar Heels, Florida Atlantic, SMU. He was on the court for arguably one of the greatest shots in college basketball history. We'll get into that as well. And there's a personal connection there. It was the first national championship game that my dad let me stay up and watch. I was nine years old, <laughs> but what a thrill to have former North Carolina, former Notre Dame, former Florida Atlantic SMU head coach, and now author coach Matt Doherty here on the intentional courage podcast. Matt, how are you doing this morning? Doing fine. Thank you very much for having me on Brian. I want to start here if we can for just a minute. This college basketball season was so unlike any that we've ever seen before. And you've been you've been through many of those wars as a head coach of multiple programs. This college basketball season, to me, when we got to the NCAA tournament, it just felt like it was full steam ahead. And of course, we had the the one the one game where VCU had to pull out because they had COVID issues. And that was unfortunate because again, their their kids, you know, who knows how far they could have gone in the tournament this year. You know, you never know in March. What what stuck out to you from this year's NCAA tournament as far as either the resilience of the players or, or what have you? And how as a coach do you manage that situation where your kids are gone, in some cases for a month, month and a half, away from home and away from campus? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's tremendous challenge. And, and I talk a lot about leadership. It comes down to leadership. Uh, I think you have a vision, you have a plan, but then you have to pivot. You have to really stay current and meet with your senior staff. And that includes sometimes your captains um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey, how, how's everyone doing? What can we do to improve? How can we make things uh, more comfortable for everybody? Um, you know, I remember uh, Gonzaga was playing like hall bowling or something like that um, to make it uh, as fun as possible because you can't, you can't forget the fun. You know, these kids, I think the, the coaches, and sometimes I, I was a grinder, so, you know, I, I like the grind, but a lot of these kids – you know, need an outlet, need to feel some sense of normalcy and fun. And um, uh, so I think that's a challenge. Um, but I thought that once we hit the NCAA tournament, which was really give a lot of credit to Dan Gavitt and his staff at the NCAA, it was all systems go. I thought the basketball was terrific. Um, the, the performances, the, um, the way teams played, and you had great games leading up to the Final Four. Um, obviously, uh, Gonzaga, UCLA in the semifinals um, was one of the better games we've seen in many, many years. Well, and again, you, you take that, that Gonzaga. That, well, let, let me go back just a minute. You, you're 100% right it totally felt like March because the the way the NCAA tournament, and I love the games at Hinkle Fieldhouse. 
I, I think that, that just my opinion, they should play tournament games there every year just for the, the atmosphere, the ambiance. You know, what you get from a facility that's, that is a basketball shrine, if you will, in the state of Indiana. The games at Assembly Hall, you've, you've coached at Assembly Hall. You've played, you know, you, you've, you've been around that atmosphere. That was great. You're exactly right. It made it feel like March. How do you keep kids locked in for that time, whether, whether they're in a bubble setting or not? You know you're going to make the tournament. You know you're going to be there. How do you keep your kids locked in for, for a run to the Final Four? Well, I, I think it's actually it, – it. you know, I've not done it, okay? I've not done it uh, in, in COVID. But it might be easier. It's more how do you keep them fresh in a, during a run in a bubble? You know, I think that's the thing. How do you keep them mentally fresh uh, versus – you know, the, the big problem is when you're, it's normal and you're on a run, the distractions they'll deal with, with everyone patting them on the back and, you know, uh, maybe worried about them going out and partying too late uh, um, when you're still trying to focus on on the season. The other thing that was a, an advantage, they weren't missing class. Now that sounds simple, but when we when when I traveled when as a player we went out west you miss some class and so now they don't have the stress of missing class they're just like every other student that's taking virtual classes mm -hmm. so you know I think that may have been um, something that took the load off but also gave them a sense of normalcy that okay you know we're going to have class today and and so that gets them in a routine i think you try to make it as normal and 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 routine as possible but it's certainly unique and i think that uh the leadership of all these coaches uh was really tested how different is the message in march than the message in november december because you're in your non-conference schedule in in november december you're playing teams you probably should beat because they're on your non-conference. And then you have some games that are marquee non-conference. Every school has them. You know, whether whether it's a school like Marshall that's traveling to Louisville or Kentucky or North Carolina to play a, a money game. I mean, let's be honest. You know, programs play those those money games. How different is your message in, in November and December as it is in March? Yeah, well, the, the message is, um, you know, process – in 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 uh, in November, uh, December, January, February, it's process. It's getting better. Even in loss, you want to get better. Even in victory, you want to get better because sometimes you'll win a game, but you don't feel like you've gotten better. So it's all about the process. Uh, then and then in March. You know, it's one game and you're out. So it's like enjoy the moment, let it all hang out, and and uh, you know you still try to get better. You know, in your victory because in a loss you're done, but in a victory say hey we can still improve in this area. Um, but you're really the energy is so different in March. It's it's exciting uh, with each step you take. Um, it, it just becomes more and more exciting. And, and, and that's what you dream about as a player and a coach. What's the one thing you miss about March from, from your coaching days? Because again, 
your teams, you you played in the ACC when when you coached it. You played in the ACC. You coached in the ACC. You coached it at Notre Dame when they were an independent. You 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 saw basketball at the high high levels. Mm-hmm. What do you miss about March, Coach? Well, at Notre Dame, we were. Um, in the Big East when I coached there. So that's right. Thank uh, you for yeah. correcting me on that. I, uh, I'd forgotten about that. That conference has been gone in, in, in some iteration. Yeah. I mean, I know it's still there with you know well, the, 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 and... the, NC, the the uh, at at North Carolina I coached in the NIT and I coached in the NCAA. Uh we lost in the second round, which was a major disappointment. At Notre Dame, we made it to the finals of the NIT. And you know, in coaching at Kansas, we were in the I went to the final four one time and went to the final eight. And, um, you know, we, we had some great runs. The thing you miss is just the energy, you know, the energy, the attention, um, with each game, you're part of a more of a select group, uh, than the, the day before. So you go from, you know, from 62 to 30 to, you know, to eight, uh, to six, you know, 16 to eight, uh, you're in a special group and everyone's watching and you, you know, the attention, the excitement, the energy, you come back to campus and there's a crowd there meeting you at the arena. Um, you know, the excitement on campus, the energy, that's what you miss. You've been at some pretty special places. You, you mentioned being at Kansas with Coach Williams. Of course, he just recently retired as the head coach of the University of North Carolina. As we record this, you were there with him in, in Kansas. Coach Brown was at Kansas. Now Coach Self is there. Kansas a historical program. North Carolina historical program. Notre Dame with Coach with what Coach Bray's done there it has has gotten to that level. SMU with Coach Brown being at SMU for a good while. You've been around some 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 of the best of the best college basketball programs. What's one thing that all those schools have in common that makes them great programs? Uh, the administration cares. Pretty simple. You got to care. They got, it's got to be important to them. And if it's not, then that trickles through to the program. But at all those institutions, it's been a, a big part of um, their identity, you know, as a university, as an institution, it's been important to them. You, you know, um, James Naismith was the first head coach at Kansas. Um, Wilt Chamberlain played at Kansas, you know, North Carolina, they beat Wilt Chamberlain in 57 and triple overtime. Uh, it's important to those institutions. And, you know, when I got to Notre Dame, it wasn't as important at the time. And that was part of my challenge is to change the culture and, and make it more important. It didn't have to be as important as football, but it had to be important enough to be competitive on a national basis. Mm-hmm. And I think we headed in that right in that direction when I got there. And then certainly Mike uh, Bray has continued on. And, and what I mean by that, it's, it's the little things that a lot of fans don't see. You know, when does the band show up? You know, when I got to Notre Dame, I remember funny stories, not not as funny now, but we beat Ohio State at Ohio State in the preseason NIT, and then we're, we were to play a home game on Thursday. 
and come to find out that the band wasn't going to be available because they practiced for football games on Thursday nights. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I got a little hot. And the band does not fall under the jurisdiction of the athletic department. So I had to call the band director myself and I got upset and he said, well, maybe we can get there by halftime. I said, no, no, if you can't get there by the tip, I don't want you at all. Right. Cause I don't want the fans, the players to see the band coming in at halftime because they, they just had to practice for a football game. So we went back and forth and I said, Hey, how many band or band members do you have? He says, well, over 300. I said, just give me 30. And he's like, well, we can't really do that. I said, listen, if you're not there by the tip, don't come at all. And as the referee was entering the center circle, 30 band members ran into the stands and we were good. We won the game and we went off to New York, but that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's systemic care factor do they care throughout the university uh, how well your basketball program is going to be great stuff let's step aside take a quick break when we come back i want to talk about coach doherty's book that that is is releasing or it is as the time we it's the time we tape is coming out and i want to talk to him about that in the process of writing that book honored to have coach matt doherty with me this morning here on the intentional encourage podcast back in just a moment Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Coach, I want to talk about your book. Okay. And, and, you know, having just written a book myself, going through that for process for the first time, walk me through your process in, in the book that you just wrote. And uh, again, was it different for you? Was it, take me through your process because everybody's process is different. I, I want to hear about your process. Okay. Right now? I'm going to start yeah. right now? Yeah. yeah okay. we're, I, I don't know if you wanted to take a no, break. No, we're good. We're good. I, I, we're a little, a little inside baseball here. I hit, I hit the, the pause button to stop us and, and, and get a, get our break in there. And then uh, we continue to record. But yeah, that's why I teed Coach Doherty up like that. So you folks are going to get a little inside baseball yeah. in this. <laughs> in yeah, I, this figured, I, figured, I figured that's what you're doing, but I just want to make sure. Um, Writing a book is a lot of work. If you're writing it yourself, you know, when, when a politician or a coach comes out with a book during the season, you're like, he didn't write that. You know, he just lent his name and somebody else wrote it. Um, 
he may have proved it, but if you're writing it yourself, it's a lot of work. And I, I had the makings of a book since, oh, you know, 03, 05. Yeah, I started dabbling with the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, you know, put it off and, 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 and then, you know, get back going coaching. And then I would just make some notes. And then um, when I started doing some executive coaching and corporate talks, people would ask if I had a book. And they would they recommended I get a book because it kind of gives you more credibility as a speaker, as an executive coach. Uh, it's a good leave behind. It's a, a kind of your calling card. And so a friend of mine, Scott Stankavich, uh, had written a book. So I asked him for some advice and he gave me his publisher. And so I worked through his publisher. To self-publish a book, I think, is very hard and 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 probably don't get the credibility, but people do it. That's okay. Um, because everything costs money, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I hired a publisher. He um, had me work with uh, a publicist, Cindy Byrne. I call her fire because she's unbelievable. She set up this interview with you. She did. Yeah, and, she's incredible. And, She's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So, you know, she gets the publicity. She gets the book out there. The publicist set up the timelines. He was terrific in setting up. Uh, Larry Carpenter set up uh, the timelines. Okay, here are the deadlines you have to meet. You know, draft, second draft, you know, down the line. And, you know, I needed somebody like that to hold me accountable because it's easy to put this project off because it is a lot of work. Um, I think the hardest thing, well, a lot of hard things is reading it over and editing it, editing, editing it multiple times. That's hard. That's a lot of work. Hey, coach, um, can I jump in here? I, I, I love what you said there about needing somebody to hold you accountable, because here you are having run very successful basketball programs. You were the CEO of the basketball programs. You were the guy ultimately accountable for the failure or success of your program. But I, I think it's it's interesting that that even coaches need people to hold them accountable. I love that. Can you give me – I, I want to just go a little bit deeper on that, on the accountability piece that you felt writing the book. Yeah, well, I think that – I always say this, you know, I can disappoint myself – but I don't want to disappoint others, you know, so I'll be held accountable. I'll hold myself accountable for things that um, could disappoint others, like winning basketball games, you know, um, you know, that's a permanent record. That's, that's something that's going to be held in, in, you know, be part of my legacy. That's uh, impacts a lot of people. Um, you know, my players, my coaches, the fans, the university. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to do that job. I'm going to hold myself accountable there, but in other things like exercise and, uh, writing a book, you know, it's easy to let yourself down. You know, I, I, I jokingly say like, if I want to try to work out by myself, it's easy for me to hit the snooze button and blow off the workout. But if I have, you, you as a workout partner, I say, Brian, we got to meet. Let's meet every morning at 7 a.m. 
and go for a walk or go for a run, now I'd let you down. And I don't want to do that. So I think it's important that you have accountability partners. What was the biggest thing that you took away? You, you mentioned having the idea for your book for several years. And, and I did too. I had the idea for, and I, and I self-published and it was hard. It was, it was hard. And I had the idea to do my book for several years like you. What was the one moment or one thing that you learned about writing a book that was so different from anything else that you had done? Because you've done a lot of really successful things. You, you take your career, you have been at the pinnacle of your career. What for you was that moment where you, where you learned the most about yourself in writing a book? I learned about myself. I think the hardest thing about writing the book was reliving some of the triggers, reliving some of the moments that cut deep. You know, those are things like when you talk to someone who spent time in war, you know, they don't want to talk about, they don't want to talk about a lot of it because it triggers some tough emotions. And so reliving, and that's the, one of the hard parts about reading over and over editing the books multiple times is you're reliving these experiences that hurt. Then you try to go to bed and you, you have dreams about it. You know, I mean, you'd be dreaming about those moments. And so that was the hardest thing for me. I, I can totally empathize because my book talks about my late father and the impact and the influence he had on me. And I would recall these stories and I would get emotional because I missed my dad. Right. And so I, I totally understand that. And, and I think it's hard when you, when you go back and you go, okay, that part of my life is gone. It's not here anymore. And you loved that part of your life and you miss that, or you miss the people that aren't here anymore. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger deeper and more powerful connector. You've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up. Kindle, if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email. And I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of people buy from people. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. You know, let's transition. I, I, this is a good point to transition to your life and your story because you have had people in your life that have been tremendous mentors and, and people in your life. We mentioned just a minute ago, coach, coach Roy Williams, who just retired as the head coach of the university of North Carolina. 
Coach Dean Smith, the the, the litany. I, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention your former teammate at North Carolina, a guy named Michael Jordan. Right. You know, you have been around some tremendous people. Coach, take me back as far as you want to take me. If you want to take me to the pre-North Carolina days, that would be great. But I just want to hear more about your story and how you ended up, got from point A to point B in your life. Well, a person that uh, was very, you know, besides my parents, um, you know, my dad giving me opportunities, my mother giving me opportunities, my sisters, my brother, um, um, you know, Bob McKillop was a big influence on my career. Um, he, the head coach at Davidson college was my high school coach, my first two years and really taught me about intensity, um, how to play hard, how to compete and the little things in the game that matter. Um, and I was blessed to play for him for two years and then work for him for three years at Davidson when he first got there. Um, the coaches in the, the, the camps that we had on Long Island, um, I talked to Gus Alfieri the other day. He runs the Gus Alfieri All-American Camp. That was my first camp I attended in fourth grade and just really – helped me fall in love with the game. Reverend Ed Vischer at Lutheran High School ran camps. The Coleman brothers were the CYO coaches for me. CYO was big. And then just the park near my house where we play and the, the ethos of the park, um, the competition, the great players that would come there uh, that would, you know, I'd learn from. Uh, as a sixth grader trying to get in the games with the college guys. Um, that was my life. That's my identity. Uh, basketball was it. And then going to North Carolina, you know, to go there and play for a coach that appreciated the things I could do. That, that was critical for me because I knew what I couldn't do, Brian. I wasn't a great athlete, but I could – think the game. I was skilled. I could pass. I could handle the ball. Um, I was a quick thinker, uh, slow responder. <laughs> but um, uh, and so I knew coach would appreciate what I could do. And, and he did. You know, I started three years. Um, Take me to the first time that you met Coach Smith when he came to your house and, and talked to you and your family. This is Dean Smith at the time that he recruited you in the late seventies, he was an icon himself yeah. in the game of college basketball. You had, you had Bob Knight, you had, of course, longtime legendary Indiana coach. You had Dean Smith. You had great, you had lefty, you had lefty Drizel at, at Maryland. You had some, some unbelievable legends. Al McGuire had just left Marquette legendary broadcaster and coach. You had all these great coaches and coach Smith, coach Dean Smith was right there. Do you remember the first time you met coach Smith when he came to your home? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I remember going to get something from my parents as we prepared for their visit. And I, I saw them coming out of a local pizzeria. Um, 
and they came to the door and I said, how was the pizza? And they were surprised because they didn't realize that I saw them coming out of the pizzeria. And, uh, you know, they sat down. The thing that I remember about Coach Smith was that he was just so relaxed, you know, um, where some of the other coaches were very, um, a little maybe more hyped up. Uh, he seemed very relaxed. And the um, one thing that I always share about that visit, when the topic of playing time comes up, he said uh, that I would be lucky to play by the time I was a junior, where most coaches would say that I'd play as a freshman. And I remember leaning forward in my chair across from him saying to myself, you know, I'll show you. And um, I think he did that for two reasons. I think one, he wanted to show loyalty to the players in the program already that he's not going to promise a freshman, an incoming freshman playing time. And then two, um, he wants to see how competitive people are. You know, um, if somebody says you can't do something or, or questions what you can do, someone who's competitive is going to try to prove them wrong. Yeah. And that's what yeah. I wanted to do. So I was a six man as a freshman and started as a sophomore. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that you weren't going to North Carolina? Because again, you know, some, and, and I don't know, a lot of young people have it. Their dream is to play for a certain school and they're locked in from the minute. And, and now some kids will commit as early as their sophomore year in high school. If they get an offer and that's where they want to go, they'll commit that early as a freshman or sophomore in high school. Did you know immediately I'm going to North Carolina or was there some internal, was there some internal angst some back and forth about, you know, different schools that you were looking at going to? Well, I, I always probably felt that they were the, the, the dream school, the lead, but still needed to do some research and um, get to know them and who was in the program and what opportunities I would have for playing time. You know, and I visited Virginia, I visited Duke. I was being recruited by Notre Dame. Um, and then I also was considering Holy Cross and Princeton. You know, you kind of have some schools like, okay, there's a risk of going to Carolina and might not play. You know, maybe I can go to Holy Cross and Princeton and be a very good player in that pro in those programs. And then everything in between. But when it came down to it, uh, just Carolina had everything. You know, the ACC, Dean Smith, good education, um, you know, it had everything that it could look for. And you were probably going to be there in March as opposed to those other schools. <laughs> you, there well, was that was a big. I wanted to win a championship. I wanted to be in a place where I could win a championship. Yeah. Take me to the first time that you met a guy named Michael Jordan, the, the first experience that you had with it, because that wasn't the Michael Jordan that we all grew to know as – arguably the greatest player of all time, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. Take me to the first time you met Michael Jordan at North Carolina. Well, he was on his visit. I remember him coming in for a visit in the Carmichael, and I think he had a hat on, polo shirt. Um, just remember, you know, his long arms and, and big hands and a very gregarious personality. And, and uh, uh, I remember him taking a couple of shots as we were getting off the court from practice. Um, you know, that's the first time I met him. Just 
I think the thing that's so consistent with Michael is his energy. You know, he's quick to smile. Um, he's quick to make a, a you know, a, a jab just to, just to test, I think, people um, and, and get a reaction to see how, you know, if they're on their game. And, um, you know, just his, his, his energies, his flamboyance, his confidence, um, you know, it's very evident. Matt, your team, I was telling my son the other day, my 20-year-old, my son is a, a basketball nut. And, I, and we were, it was actually last night, we were getting ready, I was getting ready to tell him about this, our conversation this morning. And I said, you have to understand, that 82 championship game was a big deal for kids like me because you had yourself. I knew who you were because I had saw, I had seen you, you guys play. You had yourself, you had Michael Jordan. Oh, by the way, there were a couple of really, really great players as well named Sam Perkins and James Worthy on that team as well. I mean, North Carolina that year in 81, 82, they were the prohibitive favorites. We were and all of a sudden you guys, yeah. Yeah, you guys go to the Superdome and you run into a guy that has had taken the college game by storm. And I remember rooting, and, and please forgive me, as a nine-year-old kid, I rooted for Georgetown because I loved Patrick Ewing. I mean, this guy just came into the game. And for kids my age, he was the first dominant guy. I mean, Patrick Ewing was blocking shots. He was just unbelievable. And they rode, you know, Coach Thompson rode that that team all the way to the Superdome and run into you guys on a Monday night. What take me through that game as you remember it? Now almost 40 years ago. It was so iconic for me because I remember it that, that that's the first game I watched as a kid in this big, big stage in the Superdome. And it's Monday night, and it's, you know, dad's letting me get to stay up late. Watch this game. And you guys are such a talented team, but Georgetown's got Patrick Ewing, they've got Sleepy Floyd, they've got they've got guys themselves. What do you remember most about that game? Oh, a couple of things. It was the first time the Final Four was in a domed arena. The previous year, we went went to the Final Four, and it was in the Spectrum. So the the it was it's just weird the the playing in a, a domed arena, running out onto the court, you know, instead of running like 50 yards, you feel like you're running 500 yards. Coach, can I back you up just a second? You you just triggered something, and I forgot you guys were in the 81 Final Four. I want to go back for just a minute. That Final Four almost did not happen That's right. because of the, the assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. And I'm glad you brought that up because Indiana was in that final four. LSU was in that final four. Your North Carolina team was in that final four. I forget the other team. Forgive me. Virginia. Virginia was in that final four. You guys almost did not play in the national championship game. Can you forgive me for backing you up just a second? But when you said that, what was that experience like for you guys in the uncertainty? Because President Reagan, I think, was shot that afternoon, and you guys were supposed to play that night. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And uh, we um, sat in the locker room, I think, for an hour, deciding if we were going to play the game or not. And 
they, you know, obviously, you know, Ronald Reagan was okay. He's had a trouble. So we went ahead and played the game. And Isaiah Thomas went berserk on us. And uh, we lost, um, I think, by 13. I think it was 63-50. But, um, yeah, that was a weird, surreal feeling, being in the locker room, wondering if we're going to play a game. You know, you're hyped up, you're hyped up, you're ready to go. Uh, we had played them early in the year in Chapel Hill and beat them. Um, and uh, now you're just wondering if we're going to play. So, um, yeah, that was kind of cool. You know, not cool, but kind of a unique experience, obviously. Because so. of how closely you guys were tied to history. I mean, you you know, there, there was – that was national news because – you and, and I want to step here for just a minute – you guys know that President Reagan's okay, but that would have been, you know, I don't know that the NCAA had a contingency plan because everything was set for Monday night. You guys played in the spectrum, obviously, where the Philadelphia 76ers played. Obviously, they were on the road. If you move the game a day or two later, it really messes with some things scheduling-wise. And so, yeah, to to be tied to that, did, did that game – in 81 that, that, that Isaiah Thomas went off on you guys. How did that motivate you going into the next season to yeah, get to well, New Orleans? We had, we had the nucleus of our team back. We certainly miss Al Wood and Mike Pepper, two starters, but I played a lot. And then Michael Jordan came in and was a worthy substitute, even as a freshman for Al Wood. Uh, James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and Jimmy Black were back, and Jimmy was just a great leader for us mm -hmm. um, at the point guard position. So we were very confident. We were preseason number one on the front cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, we went through the season pretty much unscathed. We, we got blown out at Virginia with Ralph Sampson. We lost at home to Wake Forest in a game that Sam Perkins was sick. But other than that, we, we, we were, you know, very confident. We, we felt even if we were down at halftime, we'd win the game. And so um, fast forward to the final four and the championship game, and we come out and Coach Thompson obviously tells Patrick Ewing to block everything around the rim. And Patrick has like five goaltendings to start the game. And I remember kind of softly bringing the team together saying, hey, just keep getting it inside and throwing it up there. Let them goaltend. You know, like that's not intimidating us. Mm -hmm. Like that's I, – I thought very stupid to try to do that because that's just free points. Yeah. Played against Ralph Sampson, who was seven foot four. Like we're not going to be intimidated by Patrick Ewing. And so I think the confidence we had was very evident in the game. And you looked at the play of the stars, you know, I thought uh, um, Worthy was unbelievable. He had 28 points and Jordan probably had the best game of his, his season, you know, uh, of his freshman season, not only the last shot, but the, the layups that he made, especially in the second half. And there's two plays from that game. Obviously, everybody talks about Jordan's shot from the corner that puts you guys ahead. But the other play is the steal that James Worthy gets when I think it was, was it Gene Banks that that threw it? Freddie Brown. Freddie, Freddie Brown. Brown. Thank you. Yeah. Freddie Brown. Just, just 
thinks that James Worthy is his teammate because it's late in the game. Jordan had just hit the shot with 15 or 16 seconds to go, and Georgetown's got a chance to come down and, he, and, and win the game. And Freddie Banks has the ball. And I don't think he was normally the guy that brought it up for them. Wasn't it Sleepy that, that normally brought it up for them? Uh, they both they were both kind of dual point guards. So Freddie Brown, you know, James went for a steal and was so out of position that I think Freddie got a little nervous and in the corner of his eye saw saw a jersey and threw it. And um, you know, uh we were but lucky. you guys had been there before. I mean, the, the the pressure of that game was not unfamiliar to you and, and your team, but Georgetown had never been there before. I mean, that 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 run that they made was their coming out party, so to speak, with, That's right. with Patrick yeah, I think they went to the Final Four and won it in 85. Um, and, um, yeah, I think Patrick's uh, senior year. Um, yeah, Patrick's senior year. Imagine that. Patrick Ewing stayed four years in college. Uh, that would never happen nowadays. Uh, he would well, be – James Worthy stayed three years. Sam Perkins stayed three, three or four years. Michael oh. Jordan stayed three years. You stayed four years. You, I mean, that at that time, Coach, I'm glad you brought that up. And and again, we're we're almost to the end of time here, but I, I want to ask you that. What do you think is the impetus for kids wanting to go and leave school their freshman year and try the NBA? Is it? It, and you've been around the college game and coach a long time yourself. Is it the lure of the money? Is it what do you think that drives kids not to want to stay in school for for at least two or three years? I think um, it's their self worth. I think they feel that if they don't go pro or talk about going pro after their freshman or sophomore year, their self-worth isn't as high. It's kind of like, you know, who's goes back to as a kid, who's taller? Oh, I'm bigger than you. You know, who can throw a ball the farthest? So I can throw it farther than you. Who's the fastest in the schoolyard? Well, now it's like, okay, yeah, I got to be recruited by Duke, Carolina, Kentucky. And now, yeah, I'm thinking about going pro. It's just a comparison. It's it's like I'm cooler than you. Um, you know, I'm cool because I'm playing with the idea of going to the NBA. I think that's the, the maturity level is a big part of it, as opposed to someone says, "No, I'm going to stay." You know, I'm not I'm not going to play with the idea uh, just because I want the attention. You know, um, it's almost like you're damaged goods if you're staying more than one or two years in college. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and you look at guys, and and, and we just had a, a guy at my school, Marshall, a guy named John Elmore. He did not play in the NBA; he ended up playing overseas. But John stayed four years and played through his senior season, and every year that he stayed got better and better and better and better. And there's just something for competition. Staying in the midst of competition, great competition, prepares you for greater competition. And so I, I love what you said there. Coach, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to share with this audience your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. Um, 
I think that uh, a lot of us have the imposter syndrome, like maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I can't do it. You know, why, why me? Let somebody else do it. But um, we all need encouragers. We all need someone to say, hey, you can do this. That'll be a good idea. And I think it goes back to, you know, you better, better have a personal board of directors of people that you respect, that you can go to for some real counsel. And they'll also be your encouragers. You know, they'll be, they'll be the one, like when I was writing this book, I went to Scott Stankavich and John Black, two friends of mine, and they both suggested I write the book. They encouraged me to write the book. And that's the main reason I did. So I think you need to find people in your life that will be truth tellers. And with that, be encouragers in your life. Because there's so much negativity out there that if we don't go for it and try something and get out of our comfort zone, we're only existing. We're not living. And I think God wants us to live our lives. Man, that is so good. Please tell folks how they can get your book and connect with you. And um, I know that that sports fans that are listening to this, they're going to want to get your book. How, how yeah. can folks connect with you and get your book? The book is Rebound from Pain to Passion. They can get that at Amazon. Or then go to my web, uh, the book's website, rebound-book.com. Um, and, uh, you know, and then for executive talks and, and executive coaching, then go to my website, coachmattdoherty at gmail.com. Coach Matt Doherty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. That's right. At gmail.com. Coach, this has been an honor. To, to have you. I, I wish my dad were sitting here. He would find this to be very, very cool that, that we're having this conversation this morning. Thank, Thank you for you, joining me on the Intentional Courage Podcast. My, my pleasure. Thank you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.